Welcome to the Lit Matters Podcast, a show whose journey is to discover the books that matter, the stories that we should all be reading. I'm your host, Chris Evans, and I've devoted decades in education examining this very topic. Each week, I'll be joined by a guest, fellow teachers, librarians, writers, and lovers of books from all walks of life who will advocate for a single transformative book, one that we should all be reading. Through this podcast, I hope to build a collective bookshelf of amazing stories, lit that matters. There is something incredibly seductive about the ocean. It's raw power, it's rhythmic cadence lapping on the shore, it's lyrical call to something almost essential in the human soul. I love the ocean and perhaps no other writer captures what it is to live at continent's end than poet Robinson Jeffers. To discuss one of California's most important and sadly, probably most forgotten writers, we are joined today by Professor George Hart. George is a professor of English at Cal State University, Long Beach, where he specializes in eco-criticism, postmodern poetics, and the beat poets. And he's the author of Inventing the Language to Tell It, Robinson Jeffers and the Biology of Consciousness. So George, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Chris. And thank you for that. That's a beautiful introduction to get us into a Jeffers mood, I think. Yeah. So thank you so much. Uh, glad to be here. I think I'm always in a Jeffers mood. He has a poem that sort of fits every emotion I'm feeling at the time, especially the last few years as well, too. <laughs> uh, I would think so. Yeah. He would have something to say about the last few years, I think. Yeah. It would have been exciting to hear that. So, so, so George, as you know, today is, uh, or this show is, is Lit Matters. And, and the focus of the show is literature that matters, books that sort of change the way we see the world. So I always like to start off with this question of all of my guests. Have you always been a lover of books, a lover of poetry? What's your origin story with reading and with poetry? Uh, thanks. Great question. Yeah, I, I have been. Um, I, it was definitely my mother's influence uh, growing up. Um, you know, my, my dad um, didn't wasn't a college graduate. My mom was. And so I think she just had a and she liked the arts and uh, culture. And my dad was more of a sports guy and things like that. And, and I didn't get the sports gene. My sister did. <laughs> and I got the more the lit um, uh, art side more. And so, yeah, when uh, I remember, you know, reading the Maurice Sendak books um, when I was a kid growing up and then as a as a adolescent, you know, uh, a young reader, it was more, you know, science fiction. I got into Ray Bradbury and mm -hmm. Edgar Rice Burroughs, you know, um, and, and those types of and I, I know. And so I read for fun and then comic books, of course, yeah. <laughs> of the day, you know, I remember buying comic books for 15 cents, 25 cents, uh, uh, an issue. And, you know, and so that was also, a, a part of my uh, reading experiences as well. Um, but it was in, in, I went my very senior year of high school. This, this will lead to kind of how I got into Jeffers too. Um, the public high school, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, so nowhere near the coast, nowhere near the ocean. Uh, we had Lake Erie, and back in that day, it was when it was you know polluted and catching on fire. <laughs> um, and uh, and so my last year of high school, the program I was in 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 Cleveland was ending, and I wanted to do something different. And my parents, we had the 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 means to get me to a, a, a art high school in in um, Northwest Michigan called Interlock and Arts Academy. And I went there for creative writing and because I was into read, I started writing my own poetry as, a, as an adolescent and stories, you know, I started imitating the writers that, that, I, um, that I liked. And so I went there and that's where I was introduced to more, more formally to poetry as, you know, as a, um, as a uh, art form, both for reading and for writing and practicing yourself. And, and, and so I could say a little bit more about that experience, but that's, that's how my time as a, a reader, you know, came about and, and then my interests developed as I got more exposed to some of these writers. Well, if I would have known we could talk comic books, and I remember the 25 centers as well, too. And Edgar Rice Burroughs, I think John Carter of Mars was one of my favorite yep. books that I first got into as a kid. I went back and reread them a few years ago, and I thought, oh, I, I think I missed a few things when I was 12. <laughs> it, he's a different writer. Yeah, I, I think you're going to see a lot more colonialism, racism, and uh, sexism in those books now. Yeah. I, I didn't see it then, but I certainly yeah. did. It only took me a few passages to, to recognize yeah. that. Um, yeah. so, so George, I'm, I'm curious, how did you discover Robinson Jeffers and his poetry? Because I will say my journey with him, it, it also coincides with my sort of 
recognition that I was going to be an English major, major and eventually an English teacher. I, it was my very first class at Long Beach State, and I walked into a class with Professor Bob Brophy. And I remember the very first day, he didn't say much to the class. He just started, I will say, reciting a poem because he had it from memory. There wasn't a book in his hand. He was almost chanting out this amazing piece of poetry. And I remember being struck by, okay, first, is he going to read the entire time? And second, I was mesmerized by the language and I was just like, give me some more. Um, so that's how I was introduced to Jeffers and, and introduced to my love of poetry as well, too, because I wasn't familiar with the form. Yeah, I think that that is that is a, a common experience, I think. And, and it's this is why we need teachers. This is why we need teachers who love literature like you, Chris, <laughs> and, and are willing to do podcasts about it. Right. Because it's it's the classroom where this happens. One thing I do when I'm uh, teaching American poetry, if I find a, a poet a current poet or contemporary poet who's kind of like reflecting back and they're talking about the first time I heard my teacher read a poem in elementary school, I try to find that poem or we, we read it. It's usually a William Carlos Williams poem or an HD poem, you know, and, and so just to show students that this is where those connections are going to come from. You're going to have a passionate teacher that person is going to recite poetry to you. And it is usually somebody who's got it in their brains from years of, of doing it, like Bob Brophy. And, and that then it, it clicks, just like you said. And, and I had the same experience at Interlochen. It was a, a professor, a teacher named Nick Bazanik, who was also a poet, right? We were, we were at an arts high school. And he just gave me an assignment. He knew I was, I was interested in environmentalism. You know, I was a camper and a backpacker. Um, that was something I, I started doing as a kid. Um, with, a, with a scouting troop, an explorer post um, that my sister was involved with. And so I liked the outdoors. And, and um, Mr. Bazanik gave me this assignment. He said, write a paper comparing the nature poetry of Robinson Jeffers, Kenneth Rexroth, and Gary Snyder. I was like, okay. And I went to the library and, and, and he was like, and I, and I ended up, this is what I ended up writing my dissertation on. You know, <laughs> like wow. that's, that's, you know, that's kind of uh, the trajectory there from my senior year of high school to my PhD program. Um, you know, that spark was there. So, and, and too, Chris, I, I really appreciate you and your memories of uh, Bob Brophy. As I said, I, I really wanted to do a shout out uh, for him on this podcast. Um, he's in Washington, D.C. now in an in a, in a, uh, elder care facility. Um, uh, doesn't have much memory, but he's doing well. But he is so important. His legacy at Long Beach State, you're part of it. You know, you, you um, being in that classroom and experiencing that with him, I talked to many people who've had that same experience. Mm -hmm. um, he, is a, he is one of the kindest, nicest people I've also met. Mm -hmm. um, and that comes through in everything he does. Um, he was also a former Jesuit, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so his interest in Jeffers comes from a deep, deep study of the Bible, a deep understanding of Western tradition. Um, and religious traditions, uh, and and then he um, also is a, a an excellent critic of poetry. So he he just he was the dean of Def Jefferson Studies when I came into it, mm -hmm. and I I kind of replaced him here at Long Beach State. I was the the person hired to do the American poetry as he was um, moving towards retirement and uh, emeritus status. So I I feel part of his legacy here too. That I'm continuing, and I and then I kept editing Jefferson Studies. Um, he was the longtime editor of Jeffers Studies. He created the Robinson Jeffers newsletter, which preceded it. Um, and it was my great honor to take it over and edit it for about 10 years um, as I was doing my work on Jeffers and, and getting my book ready for publication. So um, he's a very important person in, in Long Beach and, and really and also helped establish the religious studies program. So he's got he's got a great legacy here. Yeah. Bob was such a wonderful, compassionate human being. I remember when I was taking his Jeffers class um, during the middle of the conversation of a poem, this person just sort of walked by the door and backed up and said, just out, I mean, loudly interrupting class, you married me. And all of us just lo like looked around, like, what are you talking about? And Bob quickly recognized that he had, you know, uh, you know, been, been in, in charge of the ceremony that married this young man. And I remember, you know, he, he, there were issues that matter he'd fought for. Yep. And, and I think that sort of also carries on the legacy. So, uh, you know, uh, of what Jeffers was, was fighting for. 
And I'm so appreciative that you're still doing all this too, George, because again, you know, Jeffers is one of those writers that I just, I want to share with everyone. And that sort of leads to my next question, which is, you know, who was Robinson Jeffers? I mean, in his lifetime, I think most, many people would have known him, but today, not as much. So can you tell us a little about who Robinson Jeffers was? Oh yeah, for sure. So uh, yeah, at one point he was a best-selling author rare for a poet, <laughs> but he was in the 1920s, he was something of a sensation. Um, he was, he's also a Midwesterner. Uh, he, he was born in Pittsburgh. Um, his father was a, um, a minister and a theologian, I believe Presbyterian uh, of the Presbyterian denomination, um, but a, an extremely learned man, um, was not a, um, a minister in terms of having a flock. He was much more a, a, the, the trainer, right? He was a, a professor. And so he would train students in seminary. And the story that Jeffers would tell is my father beat Latin and Greek into me by the time I was five. <laughs> right. So by the time he was five, he could read Latin and Greek. <laughs> so he's very much like the other modernists. He's born in 1880, I'm going to, 1887, <laughs> I think is his birthday. Um, and that's the generation of the modernist poets like William Carlos Williams, T.S. Eliot, Marianne Moore, um, Gertrude Stein's a little bit older, um, but he's very much of that generation. And most of them were, you know, were trained in the classics. And Ezra Pound would be a great um, uh, analogy to, to Jeffers, uh, the, the, having all those languages. Jeffers went on to study romance languages. He knew Greek, he knew Latin, he knew German, he knew Spanish, mm. he knew French. Um, you know, so he, he was quite um, uh, well-educated. Um, he graduated from Oxford. So his father had some health issues. And that was the time period where people would say, well, you know, go west where the climate is drier or whatever. So they moved to Los Angeles um, in the early 1900s, maybe 1903, 1904. And Jeffers graduated from Occidental College when he was 16. Um, he was because he had been studying in Europe. He was going to boarding school. So, you know, he was he was pretty much already had a college education. Um, and then he went on and uh, studied at USC. That's where he met his wife, uh, Yuna, who happened to be married to somebody else at the time. Um, and that was a very famous, uh, um, it actually made it into the LA Times, the affair between um, uh, Robinson Jeffers and Yuna, because she was married to a prominent lawyer in Los Angeles. Los Angeles was a pretty small town back then. And so it made it into the gossip columns and um, it broke up her marriage. They, they figured they would stay together. They got married and, and were together for the rest of their lives. So very passionate um, um, and uh, um, uh, uh, almost uh, not violent, uh, uh, but a, you know, a passionate and uh, volatile relationship that, that started there. And uh, they had two sons, twins, um, who were born, I think, in the, in the early 20s. And Jeffers really thought he would go to England. He thought he would, like Robert Frost, he would, he would move to London. Poetry was, you know, still more popular over there. There were publishers over there. He was writing in the, in the British romantic tradition. You know, that's, that's really the, the tradition that meant a lot to him, not the American tradition. And, uh, and the war broke out. World War I broke out. And so he and Una decided, well, we don't want to live in L.A., let's go up the coast and, and see what's up there. And they rode, the, um, they took a stagecoach, right? There, wow. were no, there was no Highway 1, <laughs> there was no, there was no uh, Pacific Coast Highway, there was no 101, right? They, they took a stagecoach up to the Monterey Peninsula and uh, ended up in Carmel and fell in love with it and decided to settle there. There was already an artist, and Carmel had a long uh, history as being a kind of bohemian community and an artist's community at that time. Uh, there was George Sterling was another famous California poet who lived there, um, a San Francisco poet, he spent time down there. And he was, he was very famous and kind of uh, Jeffers connected with him and, and Carmel. And then he, he became Carmel's most famous literary resident pretty much by then. Although lots, I mean, Henry Miller's up there and George Sterling and you know, plenty of folks around and the Big Sur region was connected with the Beats and all sorts of other writers as well. Um, and Jeffers was, was at the start of that in the 20th century. And um, he um, hired a contractor to build a house out of the granite from the seacoast. And then he um, hired himself out to the builder to learn how to work with stone. Mm -hmm. 
So um, he, he, he became a subcontractor for his contractor. Uh, he learned how to build with stone. And once the house was completed, he then spent the next five years building a three-story tower that he called Hawk Tower. Um, and he built it for Yuna. He built it for his wife. Um, she wanted him to have a project to keep him busy and keep him out of trouble when he wasn't writing poetry. And that was building the tower. And, uh, and then when he finished that tower, um, uh, uh, Tor House, as he called the house and Hawk Tower um, became this sort of compound out there on the coast. Eventually over the years, he had to, they, they, owned, they owned the whole block. They, they owned the entire parcel um, outside of the town of Carmel. And then as the years went by and taxes came in and they started building the Pacific Coast Highway, Jeffers was not happy about any of that. Um, uh, he had to, they had to sell off, you know, um, they had to sell off the property to pay taxes. And so now, you know, the tour house is a, in a little suburban block in a little suburban community surrounded by other houses, but it still has the vibe. It still has the feel that, that Jeffers had there. I know, I know you've been up there a number of times, Chris. You know, it's, it's interesting because I have a, several connections to it. Again, Bob Brophy took us up there as, as a grad class. And in my mind, after reading his poetry, I expected this sort of house sitting on the ocean alone. And you're right. You get there and it's in Carmel. It's this bustling, touristy, very wealthy town. And it's just amongst this neighborhood. But there is this just, you know, almost tower that just sort of, you know, looms out over there and, and so I always take Jeffers uh with me I always read right there on the ocean at, the, at that sort of good corner there and and reflect as well too and and I must admit going back to his his, his love affair you know with, with his wife uh my wife and I when we took our honeymoon up the one we were sitting in a little restaurant in Big Sur and they actually had that poem for Yuna own you know in the in the restaurant hanging and I saw that and I'd never read that poem we didn't do that one and I was yeah. so struck and because of that it's always been one of my favorites um yeah. so yeah you know, that's but, an unusual poem for Jeffers he usually yeah. didn't get that intimate um yeah. and and it's a that's a lovely poem yeah because it talks about his own sons at war. It talks about his own reflections upon World War II at the time. Well, yeah. well so so I, I I know you've done the expedition to Tor House as well too, and I will link the notes of, of the Jeffers Foundation uh, to our show notes for, for for the for the podcast. But can you tell the read the listeners a little bit about Tor House because and Hawk Tower? It is so interesting how that tower became integral to how he also wrote poetry as well too, right? Yes, yeah, it is. Um, I'd love to talk more about this. So yeah, as I said, it was, it's built from the granite that they literally quarried it on the beach and just rolled it up the hill. Um, and so it's, it is literally an organic house in that sense um, of the place. It's world famous, you know, it's probably more famous than Jefferson himself. Um, <laughs> yeah, but again, because of those features, um, you know, and it's withstood, and it's withstood many, many earthquakes, which blows people away too, because he's not using any reinforced concrete. It's all masonry and rock. So people are, and he moved boulders that people are like, how did he move? How did one man move that boulder into place? So um, he uh, obviously gained a lot of strength as he was doing that, um, but uh, there's also, um, a number of photographs uh, that, that document him building it. And he used a series of inclined planes and winches. He built a three-story tower by hand by his own human power. Um, so that, that's pretty incredible. And, um, and that's what makes it special uh, overall. Um, and then as I was saying, over the years, you know, they added to it when they had kids and they needed to you know, expand, but at first, the whole family just slept in the, the upstairs was just sort of like an, uh, an attic, just a big open room uh, around the chimney. The whole family slept up there. They had no electricity when they first moved in. They had no uh, warm water. They had a pump to pump water, but no uh, hot water. Um, so they were living a completely, you know, kind of rugged life. It was really romantic. There were, you could go to Time Magazine from the early 20s and um, Vanity Fair from the early 20s and find profile pieces on Jeffers. Mm -hmm. because And all those famous pictures, like you were mentioning, Chris, um, Edward Weston photographed him, Ansel mm -hmm. Adams photographed him, right? So the, the image of Jeffers is the rugged guy with the tower out on the coast living in the 19th, like 19th century house or whatever, right? Was very much a part of his appeal. 
and uh, Yuna knew that. And I think she kind of, you know, pushed him to, you know, have the brooding pictures. And she had all these, she made all the family's clothing. So he's always got these shirts on that are these sort of fancy looking, you know, romantic pirate shirts or something. And she made them, you know, so she knows the image. She, she kind of cultivated that image, I think. Um, George, I love that. I mean, they're building towers and making their own clothes and I, I can barely operate Zoom and, and, and grade right. papers digitally. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing. <laughs> yeah, right. She's taking a cold bath every morning, like, because there's no, you know, Jeffers swam in the ocean every morning too, something that a lot of people didn't know. Um, he would he would go out. He was a super strong swimmer. He would go out and literally swim in the, you know, in Carmel Bay, which is right outside his house uh, for his exercise or his morning, his morning bath. So, yeah, they were fully kind of, again, embracing that lifestyle. And, and again, they both they loved old. Um, both of their favorite poet is Yeats. Um, uh, Yuna has a deep connection to Irish and Celtic myth. Um, Jeffers has Irish and, and Celtic background, Scottish background. So he's very, he's very appreciative of that. So, you know, they very much had this sort of um, uh, Celtic uh, kind of twilight kind of thing that they absorbed from, from Yates and, and made their own, I think, into a kind of um, American version, West Coast California version of that. George, last time I was at, at Tour House, I, I think I lingered a bit too long over his books the tour was coming to an end and I just could not pull myself away from all the books that were on the shelves that he was reading. Yep. And they, they quite literally had to, to, to almost force me out of the house. Like, okay, we, we know you're a teacher, but you, you, you've lingered long enough. It's time for you to move on. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, the thing, and that's the great thing about that, um, about that tour, Chris, is that everything is in the house. Mm -hmm. Everything is exactly the way that uh, Jeffers and Yuna left it there's no velvet ropes, at least the last time I did it. Mm -mm. You walk it, you get to sit on the bed. You get to sit by the piano that, uh, that Una played, you know? So it's, it's, they've, they've preserved it very well. The books are screened off, right? Yeah. They put, mm -hmm. they put up, you know, you can't put them down. You can't take them down mm -hmm. and look through them. I wish I could too. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're all there. So you could see how they lived. And the best thing I, I any listener who's going to go up to Carmel, best thing you could do is take that tour. It's one of the most okay. interesting things you could do up there. Go just Google tour house and, and you will find it. I think they do a tours Thursdays and Saturdays or something. They keep the group small. The docents are extremely knowledgeable. They're all people who live there and love Jeffers and they take you around and read your poems, mm -hmm. right. That are, that are specific to the room you're in or the view you're seeing, you know, or a special moment in the Jeffers lives and it's one of the best literary tours you could ever take. So, and you know, I'm biased, but <laughs> yeah, George, George, you are braver than I. If you if you sat on the bed by the window, I chose uh, not, I chose not to. I was a little cowed by that as well too. And yeah. for our listeners, uh, you'll you'll have to check out that poem as well too, and you'll yeah. you'll know what I what I'm referencing there. Right. Why why it's a little weird to sit on that bed. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so, sure. so George, Jeffers has so many amazing poems. Can you tell us a few of your favorites? Maybe you could share them, read them. I'd love to, for you to share this with our listeners so they can hear more and then go find their own as well, too. Yeah, for sure. And let, yeah, let me read you a couple. I would love to. And then, yeah, we're, it's about the poetry, right? Let's, mm -hmm. let's get to some of the poetry. And, and uh, I shared with Chris um, a, a current a little anthology of Jeffers works that Stanford University Press has published. Um, and he picked it up. It's called The Wild God of the World. Um, an anthology of Robinson Jeffers. It's about 20 bucks, 25 bucks. So if anybody listening wants an intro or a way into Jeffers um, poetry, I recommend this one uh, since it's in print available and covers pretty much his whole career. Um, and it was edited by my mentor, Albert Jelpe, who, who um, was a professor at Stanford for many, many years. And that's where I did my PhD under his uh, supervision. And um, it's got a wonderful introduction by Jelpy, and he is a great writer. Um, uh, you will learn everything you need to know about Jeffers uh, <laughs> from that introduction. And then it's just a lovely selection. And, and the reason why I wanted Chris to, to highlight it for the pod podcast today was um, uh, Jelpy was, he built it, he tried to build it in a way that you would be like a, a book that Jeffers himself would have published. Um, he published many books of poetry almost for a while. He was um, doing like one a year. Um, 
it is how he made his living. He had a small inheritance um, from, from his father um, and he had some patrons, but he actually made money off his poetry, um, you know, back in the day. And usually what he would do is he would have a long narrative poem. He, he continued to write narrative poems that was out of favor with the modernists, but people like Frost um, continued to write narrative poems, E.A. Robinson. And so Jeffers was more in that um, tradition, a, a more traditional approach to long poems. And so each book would have a long poem. There was some crazy story about the people who live up there in that remote region um, in Jeffers country, as they call it. Um, and then he would have a group of lyric poems or shorter poems that would accompany. So the book might be Tamar and other poems or Cawdor and other poems or something like that. And so you'd have a big, long um, kind of like novel in verse. It would be 100 pages sometimes. And then a, a series of short um, nature lyrics, philosophical lyrics, political poems, whatever he was writing about in the day. And so Jopius sort of he built this little anthology around a long poem called Cawdor. Um, which tells the story of, it's basically a retelling of um, the Oedipus story. I think it's the Oedipus story, which she retells in this one, um, a, a conflict between a father and a son uh, over a younger bride who's come to the ranch, blah, 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 et cetera. And, you know, so there's always incest and violence and murder in a Jeffers poem <laughs> uh, because crazy stuff happened up on that coast. And oftentimes he'd, he'd pick, you know, he'd use a Greek myth as the sort of background, but then he would use characters from Big Sur that he and his wife might meet on a walk or that he heard a story about or something. So it's very local, very based in the local landscape and the bioregion up there. And again, you can, and he, there's maps of Jeffers country and you can see this poem corresponds to this place or here or here. And it covers the entire central coast. Um, uh, Cause he and Yuna were big walkers and they'd go out for day hikes and pick up stories and, and learn things and come back and write about them. And so um, this anthology kind of, you, you've got the big long poem to, to immerse yourself in. And then you've got the shorter poems to use as kind of reflections. As Chris was saying, he likes to go to Tor House and, and bring his little anthology <laughs> and read some of the poems. And that's again, the best thing to do. Um, the two poems that start this anthology, I'm so glad that, that um, Jelfie put them in here. They're early poems, and I'm just going to read them. They're brief enough for me to read real quickly and just say a few things about. And they're utterly lovely, lovely lyrics. Um, they're the, the very early, probably some from the late 19-teens or the early 1920s. And one is called Divinely Superfluous Beauty. And, the, and they're both on the same page, so they pair really well together. And the other one's called The Excesses of God. I'm going to read, uh, I'll read uh, the first one, maybe make a few comments and then read the other one. Divinely superfluous beauty. The storm dances of gulls, the barking game of seals over and under the ocean. Divinely superfluous beauty rules the games, presides over destinies, makes trees grow and hills tower, waves fall. The incredible beauty of joy stars with fire the joining of lips oh let our loves too be joined there is not a maiden burns and thirsts for love more than my blood for you by the shore of seals while the wings weave like a web in the air divinely superfluous beauty so that's always a hard poem to read because superfluous is hard to say over and over <laughs> again but um it's a love poem, right? You could, it's a love poem to Yuna. This is at the big, it's, it's at the heat of that volatile relationship that started in an affair with them, right? And he's realizing what we're going through is, is what motivates all of nature, <laughs> right? The, the force of our passion and our desire is the same thing that makes the waves go, that makes uh, the trees grow, that makes all this other stuff go on. Right, and, and, and to categorize it as superfluous, right? Here's Jefferson saying, this is the most important stuff in the world. It's what you know, makes the world go around essentially is what he's saying, and it's utterly unnecessary. God did not need to put it into nature, right? Beauty, what is it supposed to do? But it's so, it brings us so much joy. It, it makes us want to uh, continue life, right? To, to, uh, to make love and to continue and, and let life go on. And so here he is in the midst of this, uh, the, the love of his life. And he's thinking in those terms. And he's like, yeah, this is just an add-on. This is just something extra. 
And that's the next poem, right? And he kind of puts it, he says almost the same thing in the next poem, but he talks about it in terms of excess, right? The excesses of God. Is it not by his high superfluousness we know our God? For to equal a need is natural, animal, mineral. But to fling rainbows over the rain and beauty above the moon and secret rainbows on the domes of deep seashells and make the necessary embrace of breeding beautiful also as fire, not even the weeds to multiply without blossom, nor the birds without music. There is a great humaneness at the heart of things, the extravagant kindness, the fountain humanity can understand and would flow likewise if power and desire were perchmates. Now that last sentence or that last statement is classic Jeffers. And that's, is, this, is, this, this poem I think has a little more bite to it than the first one, right? The first one is that love poem and he's just into it and it's great. And then this one, he starts thinking, hey, okay, if I'm a religious person, you know, I'm thinking about creation, a, a, a divine being created this. Why would he or she choose, right? Such a thing. Why would they choose to do all these things that don't really, again, it's this, why put those beautiful uh, rainbows in a shell that's at the bottom of the sea that no one's ever going to see. Um, and, and, and he says, hey, there's the humaneness, right? People always kind of, you know, Jeffers, is he a, is he a mis, you know, misanthrope? Does he hate people? You know, he's this reputation for hating people. He created this philosophy called inhumanism, right? Um, <laughs> and, and, and so, but here I think he's showing, no, he doesn't hate people. I mean, he hates what people do to each other and to the natural world. But here he's saying, if we just sort of tuned in to the way things are, there's a humaneness there. And it doesn't come from humans. The humaneness comes from everything doing what it's supposed to do. Right. And so, again, he says we can understand that humanity can understand and would flow likewise. We could just get into that flow like the rest of nature and be just fine if power and desire were perchmates. Right. If our powers, if our desires did not exceed our power. Right. Then if they were equally balanced, we wouldn't do all this crazy stuff to each other. We just kind of sit back and enjoy these excesses of God for what they are, right? And so again, very classic Jeffers. You know, it's it's interesting because you you talk about how he's been perceived. I mean, I think we look at lines like, you know, I would rather kill a man than a hawk, and that somehow has made him this person who almost hates all of humanity. And so yeah. many of his poems that are that are political in nature that look at the worst tendencies of humanity, and then contrast that with you know the ever resolve of nature and the power of that, you know, are so, so overwhelming. Um, it, 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 I, I'm curious that there is such an optimism to what he says in, in so many of the poems. Do you take more from that? This, this, this idea that we, we as humans sever ourselves from nature, thus letting all these sort of trivial worst parts of us reign. Is, is that what you take from Jeffers? This, this optimism of the universe and the world, if we allow it and invite it in? Yeah. Oh, and that's a great, I, I do. Yes, Chris. I think that is one of the primary thing that, that really um, brings me back to Jeffers each time to call it optimistic is interesting. I'm glad you see it that way because I see it that way too. Right. And, and again, I think he was, Jeffers was trying to shock. He, he was, he was using shock effects, uh, right. He was using the violence in his poems, um, incest as a theme, right. He said, I use incest as a theme because I see the human race as incestuous right, that we're just so involved with ourselves, we care nothing about the rest of uh, the planet and, and, and life, you know, that we're this narcissistic, incestuous species, and that's our problem. And so he saw those a very stark turn. And that's where people think, okay, he's anti-human, he hates people. Again, it, he's just saying, no, it's just the, the attitudes and the worldviews, right, that, that people bring. And, um, and so his poems use violence and he uses tragedy more than, you know, the, the long poems are always kind of based in tragedy. Like I said, Oedipus, or uh, uh, he, he uh, bases a lot on the Agamemnon uh, um, plays, Euripides, things like that. And so, um, uh, again, he's using um, forms of Greek tragedy to try to shock us in, uh, into uh, pity and fear, right? Just like, just like Aristotle says, he was a classicist in that way. And he felt, hey, if I could get people to really contemplate the humanity 
having this tragic effect on the world. And then it also destroys us at the same time. I can maybe get them to the point where they'll see the optimism of what I'm saying, right? That we need to, and that was his inhumanism. He just picked a kind of weird uh, term for it. You know, <laughs> it, it doesn't mean he's inhuman, right? Or, or inhumane. Um, he was just trying to define his way of seeing things against humanism, right? Renaissance humanism, which puts humans, man, white man, primarily at the center of things as the measure of things, right? And he thought the world should be the measure of things, or he would say God, probably. Um, he's basically a pantheist, I think, but he always, he never left that religious language of his father. He mm -hmm. talked about God, but when he would talk about God, he was thinking of pretty much the, the universe, the cosmos itself was his, his idea of divinity, I, I think. Um, he rejected the notion of a personal divinity, a personal savior. So he definitely was anti-Christian um, mm -hmm. in that way. Um, but he wasn't anti-religious, you know, he, he still forever, he's a religious poet. Uh, that's why Bob Brophy, a uh, former Jesuit, you mm -hmm. know, connected with him, saw, you know, saw the power of what, of what he was doing. Um, and, uh, and again, I think could see it as optimistic, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, that ultimately he's offering us a, a vision that, that could help us uh, rather, you know, lead us out of some of these problems. Um, and I think there's a lot to that, you know, I think there's still a lot to that. And, and he certainly was, I think, anti-politician. And I will say, George, after a particularly odious national election that I struggled with, um, the outcome of, of, of we're, we're really going there as a nation, um, so many of my colleagues were worried about me, like, are, are you okay? And I actually posted this on my door, and I just said, go look at my door. And it was Jeffers, be angry at the sun. Mm. And, and that poem ends with this, this stanza, let boys want pleasure and men struggle for power and women perhaps for fame and the servile to serve a leader and the dupes to be duped. Yours is not theirs. And, and he just said it. I, I was almost speechless. I did not know how to explain myself to the world of, I don't know how to reconcile what I just experienced. And Jeffers said it better than I ever could have in yeah. so many ways. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, no, his political poems, and, and that one is particularly important. He hated writing those poems, but he felt compelled to write them, right? There's, a, there's another poem from the, I think Be Angry at the Sun then became a, 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 the title poem for a collection mm -hmm. um, that came out around the war. And, and he says in one, like, I, I hate that I'm writing about the news, right? Like he's like, I, I'm obsessed with the news. Uh, he's there listening. He's in Hawk Tower. They probably just got electricity. He's listening to the radio because of the rise of fascism, right? He's listening to Hitler giving speeches in Munich. You know, he's listening to um, uh, Mussolini. He's listening to reports from, you know, fascism rising in Europe. And so he was responding to exactly the stuff you were responding to, that we've been responding to. And that's coming back at us, right, globally. This, this wave of authoritarianism. And yeah, he was not, you know, he, he just thought like, he, and again, he's of that generation that saw two world wars. Yeah. And, and I think that's why, because the, the, other, the other part of that poem, right, is the line is, you know, are you angry at politics? Like, yeah. I mean, the gist is, right, are you angry at politics? Well, you might as well be angry at the sun for shining. Mm -hmm. Right? Isn't that the idea? Mm -hmm. It is. <laughs> it is. You know, and, 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 hey, we're in the same boat, right? Like, uh, you might, it, it, we're all obsessed with it and angry about it, and we might as well be angry at the sun for shining, right? Mm -hmm. is, has humanity ever been different? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's kind of what he's saying. Yeah. Um, Did his political stances hurt him? As you talked about, what a celebrity he was. Did that end up costing him professionally? It, it did. Yeah. He he. Um, um, the book he put out after the war was called The Double Axe. It came out in 1948, and uh, it contains most of his anti-war. He was anti-war. He was anti. He was a pacifist. Well, he wasn't a pacifist. He understood violence was you know was part of nature, part of the world. But he was a pacifist to the extent that you know it's stupid for humans to use violence to solve problems. <laughs> we have language. We have minds. So. Um, you know, again, he just he hated the, the suffering, but he also, again, 
he was apolitical enough to side, to kind of pull back. He realized like, you know, he was not an activist. He was not gonna, um, you know, join somebody like a Muriel Rukeyser, you know, or Langston Hughes and get out and get involved in political action and political events. He was a poet, he was gonna sit back and he was gonna observe. And, and that's what he did. He was a, um, he's interesting, he's very Californian. He was a Republican, you know, he was a lifelong Republican. He was a cons politically conservative, but but again, I think of that kind of West Coast conservative, it's kind of libertarian thing, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, we're out here, just you know, let us do our thing. Don't mess with us. Um, and and so you know, he 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 hated Roosevelt. He was not a fan of Roosevelt. He wrote some very mean poems about Roosevelt and published them. And his publisher put a disclaimer on the book they were in and said, "We do not agree with what." our author is saying, but we agree with his right to say it, basically. Huh. So his own publisher, you know, uh, put a disclaimer on the book when they published that. So, you know, he could get, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, pretty uh, gnarly about some of his politics and say some mean, he also wrote a lot of mean um, poems about Woodrow Wilson during the First World War. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, he, he came at it from a conservative point of view, I think, in, in that sense. But fascism was not his bag, fascism, what he was completely opposed to that. Um, and he wrote a whole poem about Hitler, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, a, a dramatic poem about Hitler because he saw Hitler as a, kind of an archetypal figure, right? Mm -hmm. the, the authoritarian leader, the, the person using rhetoric, right? Um, to lead people to violence. This sounds very familiar. You know, he he would have something to say about the domestic terrorist attacks of January 6th, yeah. Jeffers, I think. Yeah, I, um, not about. And, and he would not have been in support. So, I mean, his conservatism was, I think, just a sort of old style, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, that kind. Um, but, you know, he would any form of authoritarianism he rejected. Which I had not considered in terms of like where he fit in into like the sort of free speech publication wars. And as I look at this idea of just this one little geographic area along the coast, I mean, certainly if we're talking 20s and 30s that he's having this battle as well, too. Right. I mean, we're now moving forward to Tropic of Cancer. We're now moving forward toward Howell and Ginsburg yeah. and all the beats. He was really at the forefront, it seems like, in terms of like a very different style from what they were doing. Yeah. But paving a way for them to, you know, howl at the world. And by the way, too, I, I think I mentioned this on another show. I was able to see Ginsburg read the last year of his life in Chicago. And it still is one of the greatest moments of my life. He was angry. He was there were maybe 10 people in a little bookstore. I, I don't know where everyone was at. Yeah. But to this day, I don't think I've ever had a, a, a more outstanding moment in the presence of brilliance yeah. as yeah. that. Oh no, Ginsburg is just, yeah. I, 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 yeah, I admire, I mean, he never stopped, never stopped mm -hmm. advocating for poetry and peace and freedom. And yeah, yeah, yeah. That I may saw him read once too, yeah. He was that great. may be for another episode where I have yeah. to have you on and talk Ginsburg with yeah. me for a while. Sure, um. yeah, or Beats, yeah. No, I'm, I'm you know, as you, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm very, and I am into the Beats, I think also, you know, they were influenced by Jeffers. Nobody writes like him, you know, like mm -hmm. one of your questions when you sent it to me was kind of like, you know, where, you know, what would Jeffers lead us to? And I thought, wow, that's such a good question because he, sometimes he feels like a dead end, right? Like um, uh, there was such a strong reaction against his work at certain points where he fell out of favor, like we were saying with this double axe um, book. Um, and that really was a kind of low point of his reputation. And people thought, oh, you know, he's anti-American or he, he didn't support the war. He must be a fascist, you know, all these things. And, um, you know, and, and so, but he just went on writing and doing his thing. He didn't care. He didn't worry about fame. He's got some really nice things to say about fame and how artists should avoid it. And if mm -hmm. Jack Kerouac would have listened to him, <laughs> Jack Kerouac might be alive or might not yeah. have died when he was, you know, of alcoholism in his forties, because yeah, I mean, the fame destroyed Kerouac. Ginsburg used his fame, right? Ginsburg yeah. was able to kind of turn it around and, and become one of the most you know, well-known poets of, of history. And, uh, and, and it destroyed Kerouac and, and Jeffers just, just like, if you're an artist, find a quiet place to work and cut the world off because you know, you're, you're, it will, it will ruin you. And I think there's something to that um, for sure. So he's got a lot of interesting poems um, that kind of comment on that. And actually even the funny thing is in 48, when he published Double Axe and got in trouble and his you know, uh, publisher kind of disclaimed it, 
He also um, had a hit play on Broadway. He did a, he did a translation of Medea um, for Judith Anderson, um, a famous uh, stage actress of the day. And she was interested in playing Medea and she knew Jeff, she was friends with Jeffers and knew he was a translator. So she said, will you please you know, do a, a modern translation of Medea? And it was a hit on Broadway in 1948. So as people are hating his poetry, they're loving his, uh, his hit of Medea and the New York Times asked him to write an essay. Um, it, I don't know if it's in the anthology, but it's, it is available or you can find it. But um, it was 1948 and they're like, well, you're a poet, write, write, you know, write us an essay about why poetry is important today. And, you know, and why are you translating Greek poetry? Why is that still important? And the, he published the essay, it was called Poetry, Gongorism and a Thousand Years. And um, uh, Gongor was a Spanish poet, I think of the 17th century that wrote in this crazy style that, that no one could understand. He, he invented his own deliberate obscure style. And so he was sort of seen as a kind of proto-modernist. And so Jeffers said, you know, if you want to write like Gonger, that's like the modernists. Nobody will be able to read that in 20 years. Nobody's going to understand that. So write clearly. Try to say something important. Right. And then he says, and don't pay attention to what your reputation is now. Think about a thousand years from now. Right. He's telling artists to think a thousand years into the future. If somebody still wants to read what you have to say then, then maybe you've got something to say. <laughs> I will put a link with of that essay onto the to the website for the show yeah. because again I have not read that I am looking forward to it I wrote it down and I will run to it immediately yeah yeah and if you I, can't I, find it let me know I'll, I'll send you a copy but yeah it's so interesting it's just so interesting yeah go ahead I did I did not know he had a Broadway play I should have known that I guess it reminds me a bit of I think Roald Dahl wrote uh, one of the James Bond movies like you don't expect <laughs> yeah. you know, certain yeah. writers to do certain yeah. things as yeah. well too that that's yeah. brand new to me. Well, yeah. Well, George, the biggest questions I, I, question I have today is this, and Lit Matters, my podcast, is really about choosing books and works that, that matter today, uh, that reflect who we are. Why does Robinson Jeffers matter to our world today, to the, this life we live, lead in, in 2021 and beyond, a thousand years beyond? Well, exactly. No, and we should, we should you know, hold him up to his own test, right? We should, we should hold him up to his own standard. Um, and, and I do think he's, again, he was thinking like, hey, if we can go back and read Homer now and understand it, I want to write something like that so somebody a thousand years can go and read it and understand it. And so for him, he said, and he says this in, the, in that essay, the important stuff are passion and nature. Right? He says, like the most of the, what do humans care about? We care about our things we're passionate about, and then we need a world in which to do it. And so, again, I think he's pointing out to us today some very reasonable things, you know, to, to help us um, get a grip and get a view, right? And, and, and try to get a perspective on what's happening. And that his notion of inhumanism is people should just, it, and it's not unlike what, what we experienced with the COVID shutdowns, right? He's like, just find a quiet place where you want to be, observe nature, see what's going on in the world, and you know, and then do what brings you pleasure. If it's writing poetry or whatever, you know, um, do that and 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 think about what you're doing. And I think the you know, COVID got many of us, those of us who were privileged and lucky to be able to move online or not be essential workers and have to keep going and serving. Right, which um, we're also grateful for, but for those of us who you know ended up on Zoom and ended up sitting in our you know uh, closets or wherever wherever we were um, uh, moved to when we went online, um, this is what we did. Like people started breaking bread, people started um, you know, putting bird feeders out, people people started fixing up their homes, you know, and uh, we stopped flying all over the world, and it got quieter. And animals started coming out more because there weren't as many people around bothering them. And, and I think, again, that's the vision he's saying. Like, if, more, if we just calm down and we have enough, we can figure these things out. I think he's offering us a vision that can do that. Um, I think it's tough, you know. I mean, he's, he's the white male poet. Uh, he's conservative. He, he was privileged. You know, he got to live his life the way he wanted to. Um, but I think at the same time, you know, anyone, any poet, any writer, given that opportunity would would find some of these insights, I would think. Um, and, and so Jeffers brings us to that. And I think the other thing is, yeah, if somebody can get us to start thinking on scales like a thousand years, mm -hmm. 
that's really the most important thing that a, a, that a writer, I think that literature can do for us now, Lit Matters, if we want to think about that, I think if we can have poems, novels, stories, plays, right, movies, whatever it is, if we can have these things that help us cultivate um, a sense of, a bigger sense of time, um, the eco-critics call it deep time, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and Jeffers was really good at that. He knew the stars. He knew astronomy. He was educated in the sciences. I think that's probably one of the most important things that Jeffers can offer too, mm -hmm. is that he never wanted his religious view to be in conflict with a scientific worldview. Mm -hmm. And he says, I talk about this a little bit in my book, right? He says, I've, I've always been a spiritual guy. I, I was, you know, he's raised that way. He believes in God, a, a God or a, some divine force, but he's also deeply invested in science. And he says, those two things, those two impulses in me are what makes me a poet, mm -hmm. right? That, that he's, he wants to understand the world scientifically and he wants to find what it means spiritually as well. And, and again, if that, that's a great form of faith, a great form of belief that I don't think can, I don't think it has to conflict with, again, you could be a Muslim, you could be a Jew, you could be a Christian, you could be an atheist, and you can still get uh, something out of his poetry that's spiritual, that's religious, but it, it doesn't require a certain form of belief or a belief in a, you know, a certain doctrine. Uh, it's fully informed by the way the world works. Um, and yeah, we need to think on much longer timescales if we're going to solve these problems. You know, we can't even plan for retirement. <laughs> you know, people, we can't even plan for like, you know, next week or something. And so to think like, how do we plan for, you know, a, a thousand years and, uh, and all the generations that are going to come after us, Jeffers gives us a big kind of worldview picture like that. Yeah. And certainly, and I, and I love the first idea, right? I mean, it reminds me so much of simplify, simplify, simplify yeah. and suck the marrow out of life. And yeah. I think we in 2021 don't do enough of that. I know I certainly don't myself and, yeah. and you know, writers like Jeffers lets me, they, it lets me slow down time and, and reflect and ponder far more. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, George, thank you so very much. And, and, and that's it for another episode of the Lit Matters podcast. And I'll end with one of my favorite stanzas from a Jeffers poem. Please. Tonight, dear, let's forget all that, that in the war, and an hour ourselves a little beyond time. You with this Irish whiskey, I with red wine, while the stars go over the sleepless ocean. And sometime after midnight, I'll pluck you a wreath of chosen ones. We'll talk about love and death, rock-solid themes, old and deep as the sea. Admit nothing more timely, nothing less real, while the stars go over the timeless ocean. And when they vanish, we'll have spent the night well. And I will say to all of our listeners, if you pick up a, a collection of Jeffers poetry, you will have spent the night well, and and, and it'll allow you to, to 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 look in larger thousand years and also embrace the moment that you're living in as well too. So so George, thank you so very much for joining us today. Go beach, and I, I certainly am so appreciative of you joining us today. Oh, no, I was uh, so happy to get the invitation. And thank you for that lovely conclusion, Chris. That was beautiful. Thank you so very much. And I will say this as well, too. The episode that precedes this, Homer's the the, the Iliad. So perfect. Uh, it flows. One flows right into the other. So. Fantastic. Yeah. Very much. Well, thank my you. pleasure. Thank happy you to come so back anytime. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for listening to Lit Matters. All content is written by Chris Evans and the show is produced by Steve Baldwin. Music was provided by the band Soup. Find them at Apple Music and Spotify.